You may have forgot who I am. I'm Brent. I'm the lead pastor here. I know the last two weeks have been a little different. You know, we had a panel up here both weeks, and I hope that you enjoyed that. I hope that you enjoyed the voices and getting to listen to different people other than me. Um, you may wonder, you're like, well, Brent, are you doing that just because you're lazy? Only partially. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, why do we do that? You guys know that it's never just me as the primary speaker. It's, we have Amy that speaks quite a bit, and Steve is now part of our speaking team, and we love to do the panel thing. I just tell you, I think we do that is because it's one of the healthiest things I think we can do as a church. Ashworth isn't just Brent. And 50 weeks a year of you hearing Brent and my opinions and interpretations are not, a, I don't think, a healthy thing for us as a church. The body of Christ is bigger than me, and so that's why I love it when we have an opportunity to hear from the broader voices here at Ashworth. I think it just makes us a much healthier church, so I'm very grateful for the two panels that we've had the last couple of weeks. Um, you, you know, this is the classic service and evidenced by the hymns that we sing, and so I'm assuming that if I ask this question, you guys will have things that come to mind. First service, they really did not. It was kind of a shame. Do you have any traditions, not just, it doesn't have to be around right now, this time of year, but any traditions that you have in your life or family that you think, I, I really like this tradition? What do you have? Anybody? What was that? Family dinner. Family dinner. Do you do it at the same time every week or every month? or Once a month. Once a month, once a month lunch. That's a good tradition, isn't it? Somebody did say in the first service they had a Sunday lunch tradition that uh, uh, Megan said she went with Marvin Ann and had lunch with her grandparents every Sunday. I thought that's beautiful. What else? What other traditions do you have? I have a silly one. In college, every Saturday, me and my good friends, we would order Chinese food from the same place. It was cheap Chinese food and large portions. And as a college student, that's all that mattered. And at the end of the meal, we would take the fortune cookie. We would break it in half. We would shove it into our cheeks as we would read our fortunes to one another. You know, college students do stupid things, right? <laughs> but that was our tradition. It was fun and we laughed. It was, you know, anybody else? Other traditions that you do? Hey, there you go. That's a good tradition. A jigsaw puzzle every Christmas. I like that. Well, I'm assuming we all have these traditions. We all have these rhythms that we, uh, that we do, whether we've said them out loud or not. And this year uh, at Ashworth, we're doing something a little different than we normally do. Now, I did not grow up in a tradition that really paid attention to the church calendar as Baptist in the South. We, we reserved or we let the Catholics and Lutherans have that. And anything they did, we, we figured wasn't good enough for us. And so we kind of did our own thing. And, you know, and so really, um, we did whatever, hit the, whenever, whatever mood hit us. And so I knew very little about these things, like the church calendar and Lent and these things, until I moved here. And we, you may know that we did just enter a season. This past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. Our service was iced out. But on Ash Wednesday, it begins the season in the church calendar called Lent. Now, here at Ashworth, we've done an Ash Wednesday service for a few years, but we've never done a whole lot around Lent. And we've really just kind of given it kind of a little bit of attention, but not a lot. But this year, we decided to just dive right in. We're going to follow along with the church calendar and with the scripture passages from the lectionary that other churches will be using. And so that's going to be kind of our theme this for the next 40 days. 
And uh, so as a part of that, we've got a couple of things that we're going to ask you or encourage you to do with us during Lent 2023. The first one is just simply this. Uh, Just so you know, the church calendar goes in three-year cycles. This is year A, and A is Matthew. And so we thought as a part of this church calendar cycle that we're in, what if we read the Gospel of Matthew together? And so between now, this week, and Easter Sunday, we're going to encourage you. It's 28 chapters. That means you read about four or five chapters a week. And we will comment and post on social and maybe some blog posts or whatever. But we'll try to figure out a way for us to share what God is doing as we're reading through Matthew. But we would encourage you to read it with us. And in fact, to encourage you to read on your row there somewhere, you should see something like this. It's very simply called the Gospel of Matthew. And this week, which is February 26th through March 4th, we're encouraging you to read Matthew 1 through 4. Pretty simple, right? That's even less than a chapter a day. Can it get any easier? I don't think so. So let me encourage you, take that home with you, use that and read Matthew with us. The other thing that we're doing is that several months ago, we started a prayer gathering on the first Wednesday of every month. We've been doing that for a little while. The first Wednesday of the month is this Wednesday. So we're going to do that as normal. We'll meet at 7 p.m. in the chapel. But I'm really convinced that God moves when his people pray. And so during the season of Lent, we're going to have a prayer gathering every Wednesday night from about 7 to 8 right here in the chapel. And so if you're free on Wednesdays or if you just love to pray or you're in need of prayer, let me encourage you, show up. Every Wednesday from now until Easter, 7 p.m. in the chapel, we're going to be focused on prayer. So I encourage you to come and and be a part of these things as you're able, and let's seek the face of God together. What do you say? So those are a couple things we're going to do. But like I said, growing up in the South, this is still kind of new to me. I mean, I find myself Googling a lot of things like, what is this and how do you do this? And I did not grow up knowing what the lectionary was. Did anybody else kind of go, lectionary, what is that? Didn't really know. I mean, I I read somewhere this week that somebody said, lectionary has got to be one of the worst sounding words on the planet. You take two of the most boring things imaginable, a lecture and a dictionary, and you combine those two words together. And lectionary, man, that just gets you all excited. Woohoo! No, it doesn't. But what are we talking about? The lectionary is just simply this. It's ages ago, hundreds of years ago, the church leaders got together and they comprised these books. As I said, it's a three-year cycle where through three years, you kind of go through the main portions of scripture and uh, you, you read certain scriptures at different seasons of the year. And so right now leading into Easter, where we, we read certain uh, scripture and in Lent. Now, why would we do this? Why would we not just keep coming up with what we want on our own. few reasons why we're doing this. First is just simply this. This allows us to join with churches around the world that are going to be looking at the same verses today and over the next 40 days that we're going to be looking at. You realize the work of God in the world doesn't start and end at Ashworth. As much as I wish it did, it doesn't. We are a part of something bigger and greater that God is doing in the world. Amen? I mean, amen. And so this helps remind us of that and connect us to the larger body of Christ and what God is doing. It also does this. It also helps us keep an emphasis on Lent. But what is Lent? It's not just the stuff you pull out of your dryer. Correct. (laughs) Lent is a 40-day period. 
lasting from Ash Wednesday to Holy Saturday. And in church history, Lent was about three things. First, it was the preparation of new followers of Jesus for baptism. And so we're going to be doing that as well. So on Palm Sunday, April 2nd, if you have decided to follow Jesus, if you're ready to make that commitment public, we're going to schedule a time of baptism. We'll see if we have anybody ready to be baptized. I hope so, but that'll be on April 2nd. So we're joining even then with the church and church history to say baptism is a part of Lent. The second thing that Lent was for, it was to reconcile those who were estranged from the church. It kind of created the season that said, you know what? I've kind of fallen away. Welcome back. You're, you are welcome to be a part of what God is doing again. And then also the third thing is it's just kind of a general call to the church to repentance and renewal in our commitment to Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but I like that. A call to re repent and renewal in our commitment to Jesus. Now I'll tell you, there's nothing inherently holy about Lent. In fact, if you turn in the Bibles or you go Google Lent in the Bible, it's not in there. Um, but what it does do for us is it does help create a moment where we intentionally focus on those things that might be pulling us away from God and refocus ourselves on the things that will actually draw us closer to Him. We're not talking about a legalistic requirement. You know, a lot of times during Lent, people will fast. If you wish to fast, please do so. But there is no legalistic requirement. We're inviting you and encouraging you to read Matthew with us. You don't lose your salvation if you don't. You don't get kicked out of the church if you don't. We encourage you to come pray with us. But if you don't, that's okay. We're just trying to, to open it up and have this gift that's been given to us to refocus ourselves. Because I don't know about you, but even as a pastor, I find occasionally my focus gets shifted. I need a time to kind of be brought back and be reminded my passion can start to wane a little bit. My commitment to Jesus is there, but it's kind of getting drowned out by other things. And so I need this opportunity to kind of refocus myself. And as we looked, as we looked at the overarching theme of what the verses are talking about this year, we decided to call this series that we're going to do Beauty for Ashes. Because what begins with the imposition of ashes on Ash Wednesday, that day that reminds us of our frailty, our humanity, and our mortality, it ends with this beautiful resurrection on Easter Sunday. So hopefully throughout the season, we're going to see how God will take the ashes from our life and offer us the beauty of life with him. So today, using these weren't the verses I picked. This is part of the lectionary. We get to dive into everybody's favorite topics, temptation and sin. So I told Liz this week, you know, I like these interactive moments that we do now. And I told Liz this week as we're talking about it, I said, I'm going to start with this question. What is your greatest temptation? Or if you don't like that question, go ahead and name for us what is the greatest sin that you struggle with. Liz, get the mic and let's get ready. We'll go around the room. Nobody's standing up to share. I'm, I'm really confused. <laughs> I jest, obviously. But even mentioning sin and temptation, do any of you kind of sit there and go, okay, this, what are you going to say? I kind of, this makes me a little uncomfortable. We don't really like to talk about this, do we? 
I remember years ago, we did a series on sin called My Bad. You may remember that. And as we started, we thought it was going to be like a two or three week series. It ended up being like six or eight weeks long. It was like, wow, we talked a long time about sin. But even then, it just makes us uncomfortable. Why is that? Well, I think because of human nature, we find that when we talk about these things, it takes us one of two directions. If you grow up like some of us did in churches where we love to talk about sin, we love to talk about it in a way that says, you know what? You are a sinner and you are a worthless piece of trash sinner. And therefore, it's the self-flagellation of seeing ourselves as worthless worms, unfit for anything. And not only do we feel that way, it's our job to tell everybody else how unfit they are. So you're a bad person. I'm a bad person. Let's just curl up and die or something like that. Anyone ever been at that church before? (laughs) Not just, okay, just glad it's not just me. That's one way we've seen it. And I think because of that, some of us have like a PTSD when it comes to sin. And it's like, please don't talk about that because we don't want to go there. And that's what human nature does to us. But there's another side to it as well. If we're not careful, our pendulum swings wide. Either it's all in and we're worthless or we go the other side and it's like, well, we don't even need to really think about it. It's not that big of a deal. I'm okay. You're okay. All God's children are okay. Can't we just move on? Let's just don't even talk about it. And that's not a great viewpoint either. I mean, it doesn't take long that we look around the world and we see very quickly something's not right. And we need a name for that. And when we see the evil that continues to act out in the world, we we can put a name on that. And we go, man, it's just sin and it's brokenness and it's evil. And so there has to be something between our the way our humanity is created to go to these opposite poles and find something maybe between them, between these two viewpoints where we can see and understand the seriousness of our sin And we can also see and experience the love, the forgiveness, the grace, and the salvation of Jesus. That's what we want to do today. And so as we jump into some scripture, we're going to turn to the gospel of Matthew. We find a story of Jesus. He's early in his ministry. And as you read Matthew over these next 40 days, just keep in mind a couple of things. Who was Matthew? Matthew was a former tax collector. Tax collectors at that time were people, as a Jewish guy, he was a traitor to his people. He was working with the Romans. He would have been despised and he would be considered like a chief sinner. And, but he was a man who miraculously in some way Jesus sees and says, hey, Matthew, come follow me. And he does. He gives up the riches and the wealth of being a tax collector to follow Jesus. And in doing so, what he does is he opens up his world to Jesus. And you read stories about Matthew hosting a party with other tax collectors and who the the world would have classified as sinners at the time. And Jesus comes in and meets with them and even eats with them, which was so scandalous. And as Matthew writes, which would have been years after the ascension of Jesus, after the resurrection, we're reminded what he was writing for. He was a Jewish guy writing for a Jewish audience. And his purpose behind writing was to show Jesus was the promised one, that Jesus was the Messiah that they had heard about from the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, that that's who Jesus was. So keep that in mind as you read Matthew. And then in Matthew chapter four, we come to this really incredible story. 
Jesus in Matthew 3 has been baptized, an incredible moment. John the Baptist has baptized him. And you see in Matthew 4, before he calls his first disciples, before he preaches his first sermon, he's faced with something that might seem insignificant, but really is going to set the tone for his entire ministry. Let's read this story. Matthew chapter 4 says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Matthew really kind of stating the obvious there. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every, mouth that com- every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. And the devil is quoting scripture here. He says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will not, they will lift you up in their hands and so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him. It's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. What a story. Man, what stands out to you as we read that? What what jumped out at you off that story? Jesus' strength. strength. Yeah. The fact that the devil is real and he's coming after us, right? He's coming after Jesus in the story. Oh, yeah. That's a great, that's great. Yeah, the devil was taunting him because even when the devil says, if you are the son of God, it's really not questioning. It's kind of, we're going to talk more about that. That's, yeah, that's good. Anything else? Oh, man. You guys have read my notes, haven't you? He'll find you in your weakness. Isn't that the truth? I mean, let me just tell you what stands out to me. I start by going back. I I cheat a little bit. Going back to Matthew 3, and you read the story of the baptism of Jesus. What a moment. I mean, you go back and you read and you you see that, you know, Jesus is like, John, I need you to baptize me. And John's like, no, 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 I'm not worthy. And Jesus is like, yes, you are. You can baptize me. And so he does. And as Jesus comes up out of the water, it says the heavens open up and the spirit of God descends like a dove. And they hear this audible voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. Now, I don't know anybody else want to be there for this. Put me there. Could you imagine that moment? Like you just sit there with your mouth open, wouldn't you? Like what is going on? This is so cool, (laughs) you know? But this amazing moment for Jesus, and after that moment, it says he's led into the wilderness. There's some significance there. Jesus has been affirmed. He's, the voice of God has spoken, and yet then it's followed by the most challenging and difficult moment from the mountaintop experience of his baptism to the wilderness of temptation. Isn't that fascinating? 
Sometimes I think when we think we have these incredible experiences with God, we have these moments that are like being on the mountaintop. We really experience the presence of God. We assume everything is fine. Nothing can touch me. Nothing can harm me. And yet Jesus is the exact opposite of that. Did you notice how he ended up in the wilderness? He wasn't wandering around lost said the Spirit of God led him to the wilderness. This was God's plan, God's design to be here in this moment. We can experience the mountaintop, but that doesn't shield us from the temptation that's going to come. You know what I also see is, I think it was just said out here, um, when that temptation happened, 40 days in the wilderness fasting. I had an opportunity last fall to see that wilderness It is barren. It is rocky. It is challenging. It is difficult. And Jesus is out there for 40 days without water. Anybody here done a 40-day fast before from food? I remember years ago I had a friend do it. Wow, it was impressive, and I got concerned for him because, I mean, he was down to his high school weight by the time it was all said and done. I I struggle to fast for 24 hours from food, just to be honest, but... Imagine being in the wilderness, isolated, alone, exhausted. I mean, anybody thinking sleeping out in the wilderness is a great night's sleep like the Holiday Inn? Nope. Um, Depleted. You know what that all adds up to for me? Vulnerable. Vulnerable. Jesus would have found himself very vulnerable. His greatest temptation comes at a time when he would have been his most vulnerable. I mean, how many of you, when you're tired and hungry, get hangry? Woohoo! Yeah, you know, not on our best behavior, right? Like fruit of the Spirit not oozing out from us in those moments, and yet somehow Jesus is able to do that. Not only that, there's an interesting thing. Remember, Matthew's writing, and his audience is very Jewish, and I couldn't help as I read it to see a correlation to The original temptation, the original temptation in the Garden of Eden, I think there are echoes in the temptation of Jesus that pull us back to the Garden of Eden. Yogi Berra said it years ago, it's deja vu all over again. I think that's what we see here in Matthew 4. And if we go back to Genesis 3, we'll see some of this. So in Genesis 3, you have that moment between Eve and the serpent. Just so you know, It does say her husband, Adam, was standing right there beside her. He ain't doing much, but just a bump on a log, evidently, and just right there not saying a word. But here we see the temptation of the serpent come in. And he looks at Eve and he says to her in Genesis 3, 1, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve responds, and no, that's, you know, whatever. And then the servant begins to twist the words of God And the intent of God, and he says this in Genesis 3, 4, and 5, he says, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And we know the rest of the story, most likely. Eve takes the fruit and she eats and she passes it to Adam who eats. And in that moment, their eyes are open, they realize they're naked. And in their shame, they run and they hide from God. Terrible story. But think about what's happening in Eden and what's happening in the wilderness with Jesus. Both are tempted to eat, aren't they? One with fruit, one with bread. They're tempted to test the character of God. 
I mean, in the garden, the serpent says, oh, God's not really going to kill you. And, 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 and with Jesus, it's, you know, God will save you if you jump down. It says so. And then both were tempted to give in to this desire to have it all. This idea that you're not experiencing life to the full right now. God's holding out on you. So give in and then you can experience even more. You know, at the root of both of these scenes of temptation, I, I feel like they can be compacted down to two questions. Can God be trusted? And who am I? Can God be trusted? And who am I? You see both of these questions kind of being raised in both of these scenarios. I mean, isn't that the source really of our temptation? Starting with, can God be trusted? Is God really who he says he is? Is he a good, benevolent God who truly loves us? Or is he some sadistic deity that's holding out on us, keeping us from having fun, keeping us from experiencing the good life? I mean, that's a great question, isn't it? I mean, you only have to live about five minutes before you kind of encounter that question on your own. I mean, life happens at us. Life kicks you in the teeth, and it's a fair question, right? Where is God when this is going on? Our often our temptations come when we feel like we're missing out or we're missing God. These temptations aren't even necessarily a bad thing. I read this week one commentary talked about, isn't it interesting that the temptation for Eve wasn't the temptation to murder? Why? Because that's an easy one. That's a given. Do not murder. Oh yeah, we all know that one. But the temptation said, oh, but what about that fruit? Eating fruit's not necessarily a bad thing. It was because God said, don't do it. Turning stones to bread wasn't bad. I mean, we don't even know that there was a requirement that Jesus couldn't eat in that moment. But there was something there that was reshaping it to make it very different than what, than what it should have been. You see, these questions, this question about God, it's a, it becomes a distraction that can lead us to a place of disobedience to the way of Jesus, leading us to a place of guilt and shame and derailing and distracting us from where and what God desires us to be. You see, it can be easy for us today to look around and wonder, what are we missing out on? And it's easy for us, I think, today because we know we live in a broken world. And often I think we look back to Adam and Eve and we'd go, give me a chance. I'd have made a different choice. I don't think so. We don't make that choice now. And what we see is that even in perfection, they still question God. Isn't that fascinating? Even in the perfect Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve still questioned God. But that second question is up there too. Who am I? Who am I? For Adam and Eve, it was believing that God didn't want them to be all that they could be. He doesn't want you to be wise, the devil, the serpent says. He's holding out on you. For Jesus, it was this repeated question we mentioned earlier. If you're the son of God, if you're the son of God. What's interesting is Jesus had the ability, didn't he? to do everything the devil tempted him to do. He could have spoken the words and the stones would have become bread. He could have done any of that. And in some way or another, eventually everything the devil was tempting him with, he got. I mean, there was the moment. He didn't turn stones to bread necessarily, but he did multiply the bread and he fed thousands. I mean, after his resurrection, he was raised. He was exalted. 
And as far as being given all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus did receive all the glory after his death and resurrection. And what the tempter was trying to get Jesus to do was to bypass the intent of God, the will of God for instant gratification. Get it now. And what that would have meant would have been bypassing the way of the cross. Man, isn't that significant? To miss the cross. I read somewhere this week, said Jesus could have well perverted the nature of his messianic sonship and bypassed the way of the cross in favor of some more glamorous political or military role as the liberator of Israel. What was in doubt wasn't if he was the son of God, but what type of son he would be. Whew, that's a good one, isn't it? It wasn't whether or not he was the son of God, it's what type of son he would be. And how often do our own temptations come when we not just question God, but we question who we are? We doubt if we're loved by God. We doubt if we're worth the sacrifice of Jesus. Or maybe it's the opposite. We're so full of pride, we puff ourselves up that we don't even see the need for anyone, especially not somebody like Jesus. You see, what the problem is, is when we give in to those temptations, we see what happened with Adam and Eve. We get an example of what can happen when we don't give in with Jesus. But when our temptation does become sin and we blow it, we were reminded every time just how messed up we are, just how broken we are. And to be honest, that's quite a depressing story, isn't it? And so let's just end there. Thanks for being, no, I'm just kidding. If that was the end of the story, man, that'd be awful, wouldn't it? I mean, who want, no wonder we shy away from sin because that's terrible. But that's not the end of the story. You know why it's so important that we understand the magnitude of our sin? Because that's what keys us in to the magnitude of God's love. When we understand where we've been, we understand just how far God has gone to rescue us from that. His amazing, unending, deep, wide, high, unending, everlasting love. That is so important for us. You see, if we think sin's not a big deal, God's love's not really that important. But man, if we understand the depths from which we've fallen, God's love and his grace and his mercy become so significant to us. And what we see as comparisons between the temptations in the Garden of Eden and Jesus, Paul, the Apostle Paul, later gives us some incredible contrasts between Jesus and Adam. Some important and significant contrasts that we need to understand. Let me read parts of this. I'm going to jump around a little bit, Keith. So, Romans 5. Look at this good news. Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against everyone's account where there is no law. We're not really dealing with that today. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even on those who did not sin by breaking a commandment, as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. Sin was there. It, it spread. We were all in Adam. Everyone had sin as a result, whether the Ten Commandments were there or not. It's something we're all dealing with. And then he says, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? 
Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ? It's just, we keep going on and Paul continues on for just as through one disobedience of one man, there were many made sinners through also through the obedience of one, many will be made righteous. There it is. You look at this and you find out that what Adam was unable to do in the best of circumstances, Jesus was able to do in the worst. He truly is the better Adam. And look at all the contrast that Paul brings out between Adam and Jesus. You have Adam, you have Jesus, you have sin and righteousness, you have trespass and grace, condemnation and justification, disobedience and obedience, death and life. What a contrast. In Adam, all sin and all in Christ are made alive. What Adam wrecked, Jesus fixed. Sin and death, not just defeated, but utterly and ultimately destroyed. Wow, that is good news. And we get more of that in, the, in, in Hebrews because you go to Hebrews chapter 4 and you find how Jesus doesn't just give us all this, but he's our perfect model. In Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, we read this. It says, For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Okay, setting it up. Then it says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, here's what's so interesting is when we see the perfect sinlessness of Jesus, we think that it's going to be the thing that repels us and pushes us away and causes us to run away with our guilt and our shame and to hide. But the writer of Hebrews says, "Uh uh-uh. The perfect sinlessness of Jesus is the exact thing that should cause us to be drawn to him because confidently we can come, confidently we can find grace, confidently we can find mercy. We don't have to run and hide. We can find everything we need in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's the paradox of scripture, isn't it? That's the paradox of life in Christ. And what we think should repel us from Jesus is the exact thing that Jesus says is the thing that brings us to him. Yeah, if we're the, if we're the people that believe you're a worm and you are worthless and God is just waiting to zap you because of your sin, yeah, I'd run and hide too. The problem is that's not the God of the Bible. That's not what we see modeled for us in Jesus. We find a Jesus, a Savior, with his arms stretched wide on the cross saying, all come to me and find forgiveness. That's the message of the cross. That's the message of the temptation of Jesus. Now, this message could have been, hey, here's three tips on how to avoid temptation. But that's really not the point here. That's really not the point. What I want us to understand is the significance of temptation and sin. And I want you to know that sin makes us less human, less than what God designed us to be. And the answer to our struggle and sin isn't to try harder. It's not to educate or legislate our way out of it. We can't. 
What we have to do is we have to embrace Jesus and we have to embrace the way of the cross because it's in the way of the cross that we see and experience and know God's incredible love. And so the question today is, are you struggling? Do you find yourself tempted? Maybe one of those two questions, trusting God or wondering who you are, are those things you're dealing with? I want you to know that forgiveness is yours. Come to Jesus Follow him. Come and find in him a God that can be trusted and a savior is, is exactly what we've been missing. That's good news, isn't it? That is the gospel. And that's what we want to live in. It's those ashes that have been traded for beauty. And so what I want us to close with is the words that Amy read earlier to us. Psalm chapter 32. And this is just going to be our closing benediction today. Look at these words again. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit is no deceit. We could stop right there. Do you see what's going on? The three things that the psalmist is saying. Forgiveness, your sins being covered. Oh, your sin does not count against you. There's power there. The psalmist continues on. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I said... I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. What is that telling us? Your sin is great. His love is greater.